Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning and happy Easter. Our text from God's word this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 9. Please have your Bibles open to this passage. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Today is the second Sunday of the Easter season. It's also called the octave or eighth day of Easter. The name comes from our, our gospel reading that Keith read for us. And one week ago, um, also, Keith spoke about when Jesus appeared to his disciples on the evening of the first day of Easter, the day of Jesus' resurrection. He came and stood among them in the locked room where they were hiding and said, Peace be with you. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them. And when his peers told him they had seen the Lord, he did not believe them. He famously insists, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas. A week later on the eighth day of Easter, Jesus comes again, and this time Thomas is there. Jesus invites Thomas to touch and see his hands and his side. It's really Jesus. He is really bodily risen from the dead. And Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. To which Jesus replies, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Every person who has become a believing Christian since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, is included in this blessing of Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me and countless others around the globe and back through history, including all the people to whom the Apostle Peter wrote in his letter that we're looking at this morning. In this letter, Peter addresses Jewish believers in Jesus 
who live in five Roman provinces, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look at what he says to them in verse 8 of our passage. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Back at the beginning of January, I remember preaching on Epiphany about the Magi, the wise men whom God led by a star to find the child Jesus. At that time, I was so struck by the joy of the Magi. Even before they laid eyes on Jesus, the text said they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy to see the star rise again that would lead them to him. Well, this text in verse 8 is like that one, only more so if you can believe it. Like the Magi, the folks to whom Peter writes have not laid eyes on Jesus. But also like the Magi, they are so sure that they will see him, that they are bursting with joy. The Magi rejoiced in the certainty that the star would lead them to see Jesus. These folks rejoice in the certainty that their faith will lead them not only to see Jesus, but to dwell with him forever. As Peter goes on to say to them in verse 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Back in verse 8, the verb translated, you rejoice, is not the verb usually used in Greek for rejoicing. The word picture in the, the derivation of this less common verb is jumping for joy. <laughs> so it has built into it the sense of rejoicing exceedingly. This verb occurs only 11 times in the New Testament. Three of these are in 1 Peter. And two of the three are right here in our passage. Looking at all the uses uh, of this verb in the New Testament, I believe it has been reserved to express the rejoicing that happens in heaven. For example, it is in the verses in the book of Revelation that inspired the famous Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. So when you think of all the joy that comes through in the Hallelujah Chorus, that is just a hint of what this verb is trying to convey. So the verb already means rejoice exceedingly, but the intensity is increased because Peter says of his readers, they rejoice with joy that is so overwhelming that they cannot even find words to express it. And also that their joy is filled with glory. 
Actually, the literal translation says their joy has been glorified. It's been zapped with the glory of God so that it glows. It's like the face of Moses that glowed with the glory of God every time he emerged from meeting with God. Wow, these folks to whom Peter writes really are blessed as those who have not seen and yet have believed. But there's a wrinkle. The exact same rare word in verse 8, which has the sense of rejoicing exceedingly with the joy of heaven, occurs in another place in our passage. Back up and take a look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here, rejoicing with the joy of heaven appears in the same sentence as suffering in various trials on earth. I want to point out two other surprising things about this verse. First, Peter writes as though the trials his readers face are not too big of a deal. <clears throat> he talks about a little while. But actually, that little while could be the rest of these folks' lives. And he says they have been grieved. The word grieved here has the sense of vexed, annoyed, irritated, like with a mosquito that keeps buzzing around you. Yet the trials likely in view here are not what we would think of as merely irritating. Try terrifying. Trials either directly or indirectly caused by the escalating persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire. These persecutions had begun in Rome under the uh, Emperor Nero, a very nasty madman, and they were making their way to the Roman provinces in which these folks lived. The second surprising thing in this verse is uh, the little phrase easily missed, if necessary. Take a look at it there in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In the Greek, this phrase is called a first-class conditional, which means it's assumed to be true. Keith was talking about this last week, uh, the verse that's in Colossians that starts, if you have been raised with Christ, actually means since you have been raised with Christ. Same here. If necessary actually means since it is necessary, and the verse becomes, in this you rejoice though now for a little while, since it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, necessary for what? <laughs> now, just in case you think I am misrepresenting Peter here, 
Later in this same letter, Peter says the same thing more directly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This all reminds me of a meme I saw on the internet a few years ago. The text for the image said this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the image was of a Roman Colosseum packed out with spectators and a lion facing a huddle of Christians. I have to say that if this really was God's wonderful plan for my life, I don't know that I would be jumping for joy. So what is Peter on about with all this? A little background here. By the time Peter writes this letter, he is no stranger to the reality of suffering as a Christian. Of course, he doesn't start out that way. Remember how Peter foolishly boasts that even if everyone falls away, he will never fall away. And even if he must die with Jesus, he would never deny Jesus. But as soon as there is a hint that Peter might have to suffer because of his association with Jesus, he promptly falls away and denies him three times. Then in shame at this failure, he withdraws into hiding. However, after Jesus' resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter boldly takes to the street to declare the mighty works of God. And in our reading today from Acts chapter 2 that Logan read for us, Peter publicly argues from the prophetic words of King David in Psalm 16 that God promised to raise his Messiah, his Christ, from the dead. And then Peter proclaims that the Jesus who was crucified is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Did you know that the Greek word behind the word witness is where we get our word martyr? Today, being a witness just means communicating the gospel in words. But the original meaning involves identifying publicly as a Christ follower. It includes communicating the truth of the gospel, but also testifying to the profound worthiness of Christ by being willing to suffer and even die in the face of hostile opposition. Such witnesses 
not only bring glory to God, they also bring others to Christ. They say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because of the tremendous growth of the church that occurs as people proclaim the worth of following Christ through their willingness to suffer or even die as his followers. Peter was this kind of witness. In Acts 4, he is arrested and interrogated and threatened by the religious authorities. And in Acts uh, 12, he is imprisoned and chained and threatened with execution by Herod. In both cases, the Lord delivers him that he might continue to bear witness to the resurrection. But eventually, although the Bible does not record the details, Peter dies as a martyr, as Jesus himself said he would. So the letter of 1 Peter is written by a man who had suffered much and led a church that had suffered much and was facing the prospect of suffering more. So what does Peter have to say about why believers both suffer in various trials and yet also rejoice with heavenly joy? Well, first, he does not say believers are masochists who enjoy suffering. Suffering is not a good thing in itself. Rather, it's a tragic consequence of the fall. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sought to avoid suffering if, in the will of God, this were possible. It was not possible. Neither does Peter say it's some kind of karma, as though we rejoice to suffer in this life because of the heavenly victim compensation we're going to get in the next. Again, look at Jesus. Jesus did not suffer torture and a drawn-out, humiliating execution for the sake of his future, which was already completely secure, but for the sake of ours. As Roger spoke about on Palm Sunday, Jesus is in very nature God, yet he obediently laid aside all his status and privilege and went to the cross for us. And if the ocean represented his sacrifice, we could not add a single drop to it by any amount of suffering on our part. No, look at verse 7. Peter says the reason, purpose, meaning for a Christian in suffering various trials is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering reveals genuine, the genuineness of faith and the worthiness of faith's object, God. 
Genuine faith is precious, more precious than gold, Peter says. Because although gold goes through the fire to be purified, gold will still perish. It will eventually come to nothing. Not so with faith, says Peter. Faith goes through fiery trials and is proved genuine. But unlike gold, genuine faith has lasting value, everlasting value, in fact. It does not come to nothing. As verse 7 says, it results in praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. Praise and glory and honor for whom? Primarily for God, but also for believers in a derivative sense. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts this in his paraphrase, The Message. He says, Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. If we really understand what Peter is saying here, we'll also understand why he seems to make light of the trials his readers face. A lifetime on earth is just a little while compared with eternity. Suffering through various trials on earth will ultimately seem like an insignificant annoyance compared with the surpassing joys of heaven. And the supposed benefits of a pain-free life on earth, one day they will pale in comparison to the glories in heaven that result from faith proved genuine through trials. It is with this perspective that it is possible to speak of suffering and joy in the same sentence. But realistically, how can we, in the face of a litany of painful experiences in daily life, have this kind of perspective? How do we see with the eyes of faith and know the joys of heaven in the midst of grievous trials on earth? Look again at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you, will have been, you have been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice. What's the this? The this refers to the whole of verses 3 to 5. We finally come to the first three verses of our passage, which are one sentence in the Greek. The core of that long sentence comes right at the start, and everything else just cascades from that. In English, the core is expressed like this at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Another way to state this is to say, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. Worthy of all praise and glory and honor. The praise and glory and honor that we just saw in verse 7 results when the faith of believers proves genuine through various trials. What follows in the rest of verses 3 to 5 is not an exhaustive list of all the reasons God is worthy. Such a list would fill a whole lot more than three verses and would still be woefully incomplete because as creatures, we're not capable of comprehending all the reasons why our creator is worthy. But the list in these verses is comprehensive concerning our faith and salvation. I will draw out five reasons for or from these verses why God is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Here we go. Number one, God is worthy because he is merciful. Verse three says, according to his great mercy. God has not repaid us as our rebellion deserves. Instead, while we were yet his enemies, he sent Jesus Christ, not to condemn us, but to save us by dying for our sins. God is worthy because he is merciful. Number two, God is worthy because he is the source and goal of our faith. Verse 3 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We could not have produced our own faith any more than a dead man could raise himself to life. This is the work of God alone. The Bible says we were dead in our tre trespasses, but God raised us to new life by the same power by which he raised Jesus from the dead. And by means of that new life, he caused us to come to faith, to have, as verse 3 says, a living hope. And what is this living hope? Verse 4 calls it, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And verse 5 refers to it by these words, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our faith is from God, our faith is in God, and our faith is to God. Remember what verse 9 said? that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And remember what Keith has said many times in our Hebrews series, salvation is eternal life with God in a place. God is worthy because he is the source and goal of our faith. Number three, God is worthy because he is guarding our inheritance for us. Verse 4 says of our inheritance that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The word kept 
has the sense of being guarded. And it is because God is guarding our inheritance for us in heaven. Because of this, we can know that our inheritance has the qualities that are listed there. It will last forever. It will never be lessened or lost. And its beauty will never fade. God is worthy because he is guarding our inheritance for us. Number four, God is worthy because he is guarding us for our inheritance by faith. Verse 5 says that by God's power, believers are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is not only the source and goal of our faith, he is also the sustainer of our faith. By his power, he is guarding us that we might indeed persevere in faith and receive our promised inheritance. It is such an encouragement to us to know that when we feel like our faith may fail, we can rely on God who not only guards our inheritance for us, but guards us for our inheritance by faith. Finally, number five, God is worthy because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse three refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the irrefutable sign that God has accomplished his salvation purposes through the cross. Sin and death have been beaten. As Bishop Charlie said, it is finished. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also the guarantee that all God's other promises concerning our inheritance, and indeed all God's promises to all creation, will also be fulfilled. God is worthy because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I know that my Redeemer lives. Hallelujah. In conclusion, how do we see with the eyes of faith and know the joy of heaven in the midst of grievous trials on earth? By seeing those trials, as one of the ways that we will ultimately participate in the heavenly worship of our entirely worthy God, on whom we are utterly dependent from start to finish for the joyful prospect of our salvation. Whatever those trials may be, all those various trials, whether actual persecution or some other cross that Jesus bids us take up while following him. Let us join Peter and all the other witnesses down through history and around the globe who accept suffering, dying to self, and in some cases, even death, in order to be part of the joyful work of bringing glory to God and bringing people to Christ. Amen.